Hello and welcome back to the Operating List podcast. My name is Angie and I'm one of your hosts. And today I'm joined by Sabrina Quark, a consultant obstetrician at the Women and Children's Hospital in Adelaide. Sabrina had been practicing for over 25 years and I'm really excited to be able to sit down and share some of the stories and experiences she has had. So with that, I want to give a warm welcome to Sabrina. Angie, thanks so much for asking me to do this. Um, I'm really excited because it brings together two of my loves. I love teaching and I love obstetrics. We really are so excited to have you here today. So to begin, tell us a little bit about yourself. I've wanted to deliver babies since I was nine years old and I've been doing so for more than 25 years. So I'm very proud and happy to be part of a team of people who look after women at a time that is one of the most critical times of their lives. It's such a privilege to be in the room and look around and realise that this is one of the few days that we will all remember um, and that's really special to the parents. I'm a senior specialist obstetrician in women's and children's hospitals. So that means I work as a staff specialist in the public and I work in the private group practice delivering my private patients in the public hospital system. Life, I think, is all about choices and about balancing those choices. So I've been very lucky to be able to be primarily a clinician, do a little bit of research. So I've published in the areas of manual rotation as well as fetal monitoring. And both of these are looking at whether or not we can decrease the cesarean section rate. So I'm excited to be able to share a little bit about sections with you today. Yes, and that brings us to today's topic, cesarean sections, which I'm really excited to be learning more about. And I'm really excited that you guys are doing these podcasts because I think any way that you can reach out and teach in different manners or just be curious about whether or not there's something that might attract you to various areas of medicine, I think that's a good thing. Yes, that's exactly what we're hoping as well. And we're so excited that you're on board with this as well. So I think today we said that we're going to discuss C-sections in particular and go through them and what the whole management process of a C-section would be. But before we really dive into it, maybe we can take it broad and just talk about the different methods of delivery and when you would choose them. Yeah, I think one of the things that really sets obstetrics aside from a lot of other areas of medicine is you're dealing with um, a very wanted event as opposed to some medical pathologies which people are not really wanting. Sometimes a long, hard-fought battle to get to the point where you're pregnant and you're dealing with generally well people. So there's a lot of patient autonomy or choice involved. So we spend a lot of time counselling, informing. We think about it as a shared decision-making model. So it's really important to me that the patient understands the different options of the different ways that they can birth as part of their antenatal care journey. So let's just narrow it down and talk about a headfirst singleton baby. So one baby and um, it's presenting at term in the, the usual way. So we would say that in our institution that delivers about 5,000, about half of these babies will deliver normally vaginally. That's um, a little shocking for most women to understand that because most women believe that they're coming into the labour floor and they will therefore have a vaginal birth. But actually, if you think of vaginal birth as just uh, a natural vaginal delivery, about 50% have that. About 15% or so have what we call an assisted vaginal delivery. So in our institution, we probably are a very strong forceps institution. So I'd say about 10% of ours are by forceps and the other 4 to 5% 
using the vacuum cup. And then a cesarean section, that's the, the real thorn in our side. I think Australia has a relatively high cesarean section rate, but we've got very good um, neonatal as well as maternal outcomes that I think we're quite risk averse and we're unwilling to let go of that. Things I guess I want to highlight, um, particularly in, in the mode of delivery, that in the age of autonomy and you know with patients who come to us very informed and very clear about their choices and with such a high recognition of the mental health um, issues at play we are increasingly getting maternal requests as their sections which we are increasingly feeling are a very valid choice that these informed patients are making. So I think that you're going to find that there are going to be more and more cesarean sections. So talking specifically about C-sections, what kind of investigations or any examinations would you like to do for a woman that's come to you and she's in labour? Okay, so when a, a lady's in labour, you take for granted that a lot of the screening has already been done, um, that we've checked for whether they've got diabetes and, you know, you know how to manage that. And obviously if they have, then you'll be checking their sugars and making sure that you keep them on track during their labour. Um, high blood pressure, likewise, we definitely want to be doing um, their, their blood investigations in case their platelets are down, which happens in preeclampsia, which might change our um, options in terms of offering them an epidural. And so we work very closely with our anaesthetic colleagues on the delivery suite where that's concerned. So there's a lot of medical illnesses that we need to be across um, and to have safeguards in place with that. Um, but I guess the labour-specific investigations really comes down to securing fetal well-being um, and monitoring how the labour is going. So fetal well-being, can you imagine if we were to say to you that um, the time that the baby is labouring, trying to come out and on the perineum, is the most dangerous time of any human's life. Um, and so you walk into an intensive care unit and I say to you, all you've got is the heart rate to look at because that's really all we've got. We've got the fetal heart rate. We've got some adjuncts that we can do a fetal ECG that might help us to um, read that CTG a little bit better, but you don't have everything that you're used to in, in um, you know, the rest of medicine um, to be able to monitor how this fetus is going. So we use everything. We use things like, you know, do we think that the maternal temperature or the fetal heart rate tachycardia suggests that there's an infection on board because an infection gives you a, a discrete and different pathway to injury versus the hypoxia that you're usually looking out for. Um, we make sure that we start some monitoring early so that we've got a baseline of how happy baby is. So we use what's called the CTG, which is the cardiotachograph. So it looks at the baby's heart rate as well as looking at the mum's contractions. And therefore, you can then interpret how the baby is dealing with stress because every baby will be stressed in labor. Um, it's just a matter of whether or not they give you good reassuring signs of, look, here I am, you know, I'm dealing with the stress, but I'm coming back to the baseline and I'm well resuscitated. Um, we look at ma making sure that we're watching the contractions and we don't have too many contractions in, we call it every 10 minute block. So we like three to four 
moderate to strong contractions every 10 minutes so that we know that we've got good labor that will hopefully result in cervical dilatation. Um, we also look at the color of the LIPOR. So the fluid that surrounds baby can tell us a lot. If it's got that meconium greenish color, we know that baby's had a stressful event at some point in time. We also know that as a separate pathway to injury, we need to be a little bit more careful how much fetal distress we tolerate in, in, in our watching the CTG. Um, if mum's had a bleed inside, and sometimes these are concealed and it's only when you rupture the membranes that you realize that that's the case, um, we need to be very, very careful because an antepartum hemorrhage um, can weaken, but the postpartum hemorrhage can kill and, and women can bleed very quickly. So we need to take a little bit of care um, in watching how the baby's traversing the terrain. Um, and we've got the ability to turn down the contractions if, if we're looking at using syntocinon, a hormone to give you contractions to either start labor or to keep labor going. Um, and we can also give a medication to butylene to be able to um, you know, relax the uterus a little bit. And that's like, if you're thinking of the idea of the fetus running on a treadmill, that's like turning down the treadmill. And you do that to resuscitate the fetus, to just put a pause on everything, see what the baby's like. If the baby recovers, then you can start up again. But if the baby really doesn't recover and the baby is distressed without the stimulus of having contractions, then you need to start having that conversation as to whether or not you're going to actually be able to achieve a vaginal birth. So we've been kind of talking about this topic of fetal distress what are the signs that you might be looking for to know whether you might need to do an unpredictable method of delivery? Okay, so I guess we can think of this in two ways. One is before we get to fully dilated. Um, so the cervix has to be fully dilated for us to be able to do an assisted vaginal delivery force of sore vacuum. Before we're fully dilated, the only other option if you need to deliver the baby is by cesarean section. And so the two reasons that you might need to do that is if you suspect fetal compromise, which we've already talked a little bit about. And the other one we haven't touched on so much is progress. And I wanna share with you a story of a patient of mine that I think is just delightful because it encapsulates pretty much most of your teachings and learnings that you can um, focus on in understanding intrapartum care. So this lovely lady had a large for gestational age baby. So that means that uh, you know other people might call it impending macrosomia. So this is a big baby. A lot of us do an ultrasound in the third trimester, so about 32 to 34 weeks, so that we can get a feel for the size of baby. But these babies often will hover well above the pelvis um, because it is the size of baby that will determine the descent. So we all focus on the dilatation, but the descent is actually really important. And typical to her situation, she had slow progress. But she made it to fully dilated, but baby's head stayed high and it was in the occiput posterior position. So when we talk about that, we talk about the way that baby is facing. And when babies are looking downwards, they deliver most easily. So head first, looking downwards, what we call occiput anterior. When they're looking upwards, or mums might call it stargazing, baby spine to your spine, sunny side up, um, that posterior position that happens in 10 to 20% of, of um, babies, can prove tricky to manage. 
75% of these babies will need to be delivered operatively. So that means something to turn the baby, so forceps, vacuum or the hand to turn the baby to be occiput anterior and then deliver or a cesarean section, which is very tricky and dangerous. Not all cesarean sections are equal. Some are harder than others. And a fully cesarean section in an OP baby is one of your trickiest cesarean sections. So I think all obstetricians need an answer to the OP baby. Mine is to use my hand to turn the baby. So we went off to theatre because I felt that this baby hadn't proved itself to certainly be able to do um, navigate the birth canal. Really important that you talk to your team and you manage that communication so that you optimise the outcomes for everyone and make it safe for the lady. So the anaesthetist knows that I'm uncertain of my success rate. The theatre staff are waiting to open the caesarean section pack in case I'm not successful with my forceps and I need to deliver by caesarean section. And the neonatologist are ever ready that if that's the case, then baby may well have struggled for a little while to turn forceps and then end up as a section. So we're all on the same page. Um, and I managed to turn baby very easily using the ultrasound as well as I use my fingers on the ear to help me work out which way baby definitely is facing. Um, because very few babies, in fact, I haven't come across any, have their ears stuck the wrong way around. So I find the ear a really useful thing to tell me that, okay, Definitely, I need to turn this way to turn baby clockwise from facing upwards to facing downwards. So successfully did that, but then we didn't get any dissent and that's the alarm bells. That's saying to you, you know what? You shouldn't be doing a forceps here. You should be doing a cesarean section. Funnily enough, as a surgeon, it is much harder to decide not to do a procedure than to do a procedure. So off we went to do the cesarean section and we took the greatest of care to disimpact that head. Remember that head has been trying to come down, 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 and now you're gonna reach from the abdomen down and scoop it up and hope not to tear the edematous, very overworked muscles of the uterus. So you can do that from both ends. Um, you can use a fetal pillow to try and disimpact it vaginally, and that's a very good thing to do. So you inflate a, literally a pillow um, that pushes the head up very gently. You can ask the anaesthetist to give IVGTN, which helps to um, relax the muscles of the uterus. And you can use your hand very, very gently and with great skill to very slowly disimpact the head and then bring it forth. So we had a successful delivery, all was good. You know, definitely a debrief is required after that. And in fact, when she came the next time, she was absolutely gung-ho wanting to have a vaginal birth after cesarean section, which is great. We're very supportive of vaginal births after cesarean section, but I note that our hospital have 5% of our ladies try for a VBAC and only half of them succeed. So in actual fact, many of the women will choose to have an elective repeat cesarean section. I think something that medical students, maybe due to the lack of experience, find difficult is this whole process of explaining a procedure, the risks and complications, and consenting a patient, essentially, in layman's term. Could you talk us through how you would do that, how you'd explain it to a patient? I believe that consent in pretty much all surgical settings ideally should sit on a foundation of deep discussion. So it really is just formalization of the shared decision model making between yourself and your patient. However, in emergencies of their infections in obstetrics, sometimes it can be the first time that the patient and her partner are hearing of the risks of the surgery. 
So it's really important that you set the tone. I do so by quieting the room and explaining that I'm going to do a consent, which is a legal document and is quite important for them to listen to. So then I go through and explain that 30% of our deliveries in this hospital is done by cesarean section. So we're very good at this um, way of delivering baby. But nonetheless, I'll explain to them how it's done and then I'll explain the risks of it. So I go through and explain that we make a, a crossways cut um, under where the top of someone's underpants might be on mum and then cut all the way through the layers across on the uterus and deliver the baby. At this point, I'd like you to you know, embrace this as your baby's birth theatre so we'll drop the drapes and it's actually a very beautiful experience for you to see your baby being born. Once birthed and after some delayed cord clamping baby will go over your left shoulder to where the neonatologist is waiting um, to just check baby over and then bring baby over to mum for some skin to skin. It's during this time that we're delivering the placenta and closing up. So the risks of the operation include that of um, infection. We do cover you with antibiotics, but obviously it's possible to get infections usually in the lungs or in the wound um, afterwards. So where the lungs are concerned, it's about getting you up and moving. And in fact, all of um, the recovery is about normalizing and mobilizing. And that's why we will give you injections into your tummy of clexane to thin the blood until you're walking around enough so that we diminish the risk of having a clot in the back of your leg. If a piece of that breaks off and goes to your lung, that's a life-threatening situation. If you've had operations before, then there may be a risk of our injuring your bowel or your bladder or the ureters. Um, and in fact, I enter every um, abdomen as if things are stuck in the wrong place anyway. Should we do that and we know about it, the repair is actually quite straightforward. It's really if we injure an organ and we don't know about it. And that's why we ask you to please come back to us if there's any problems after the operation for the weeks thereafter. It's possible that as we enter the uterus, there's a slight incision made on baby. This is like a paper cut on baby's skin. It's unlikely to happen, but were it to happen, it doesn't scar, it heals very easily. Bleeding is the big issue and we know you'll bleed. It's a matter of how much you bleed. If you bleed so much as to need a blood transfusion, then obviously we'd like to talk to you about it. If we can't, then we talk to your partner. It is possible to bleed so much that we need to take out your uterus in order to save your life. This happens about half a dozen times in South Australia. Um, and if you were to ask me, does that mean that I can die from the operation? The answer has to be yes, but this is highly unlikely to happen. Recovery time after the caesarean is measured in weeks, but you're getting better and stronger and more mobile every day. You will bleed for a couple of weeks. And if the bleeding suddenly becomes offensive in its odor or increased, then you need to get yourself to a GP to get some antibiotics. So that's per vaginal bleeding we're talking about. And that's an infection inside the uterine lining that will respond very quickly to the antibiotics. The last thing to mention is having a caesarean gives you the opportunity next time around, if appropriate, to have a vaginal birth after caesarean section or an elective repeat caesarean section. I then ask the patient and their partner if they have any questions and then hand over to the anaesthetist who's able to then go through their own consent for the procedure. So going on to the actual procedure, are there different surgical approaches to a C-section? Yes, so we've talked mainly about the term baby, but I guess if, you, if you're thinking in terms of a preterm baby, then you need to think in terms of how you best enter the uterus. The skin incision, I guess I should say first up, is um, 
has become very straightforward. So in the past, I would say when I was training, we still felt that if we needed to get into the abdomen very quickly, we would use a midline incision to do so because that's the quickest entry. However, because we've had a change of scope of practice where a lot of people um, might be pure obstetricians, not do any gynecology and therefore not use that longitudinal incision on the skin very much, and because even in our gynecological colleagues, they're using a lot of keyhole or laparoscopic surgery. So there's far less opportunity for the midline laparoscopy, uh, midline um, incision to be used. We now train everyone to use a transverse skin incision, even in an emergency. So the skin incision's almost always going to look the same. On the uterus, though, there's an area called the lower segment that forms throughout the second half of um, the pregnancy. And depending on how well formed this thinner segment is, determines whether or not you feel you can use it to deliver the baby. So a preterm baby, you always have to ask yourself, is there enough lower segment there? And if baby's been head first the whole time, there may well be. But if baby's transverse, you might find that there's not a lot of lower segment. And you have to be aware that in a preterm delivery, you might be safer off doing what's called a classical cesarean section. So a straight up and down scar in the middle of the uterus, which will be thicker, harder to get into and will bleed more. However, it lays a uterus open and gives you better access to delivering the baby. In a preterm birth, I think I have two jobs. One is to get the timing right. And that might be you know, everything to do with the discussions that happen beforehand. Half the preterm births are what we call iatrogenic. So we've decided that it's time for baby to be delivered. Um, and the other half are because they've come into preterm labor. And, and sometimes if they, they do and they get infected, it's actually important for you to chase that baby out because babies don't do well in an infected environment. And once I've got the timing right, then it's important that I give the neonates a baby in the best condition possible. So a um, atraumatic delivery. There are times that you'll make a transverse incision and you'll have trouble delivering the baby. Then you've got the option of turning it into a T incision of going upwards to be able to do that. Um, so, but otherwise routinely in a cesarean section, the approach is to do an acrosswise incision on the uterus, what we call a lower transverse incision. And you need to be careful not to go out too wide. We call that tiger country. So that's where the uterine artery and the ureters um, are at the side of the, the uterus and you want to avoid getting yourself into that area. Since we're touching a bit on anatomy, could you talk us through the layers that you go through to get there? Yeah, absolutely. So we've already talked about the skin incision. Just a tip, I would be trying to develop your ability to use a scalpel, both in a feather light way when you're on the uterus, for example, as well as in a very definitive manner when you're on the skin, for example, because if you're feather light on the skin, you'll end up with a skin incision that's ragged. And my father taught me, he's an obstetrician as well, um, that the skin and how that heals and the, that that's your signature. That's all the lady's going to remember when she looks down. Um, so the woman's going to very much want it as nice a scar as possible. So make sure that it's not wonky, it's not lopsided, you know, that, that it is central, that it's as small and low as possible cosmetically, um, and that you do a very definitive, decisive cut on the skin. Then you cut through the adipose tissue, then you get to the erector sheath and you cut through that. Ever mindful that if she's had a, 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 um, 
abdominal surgery before, you might have loops of bowel or even bladder stuck to the back of that sheath. Um, then you will end up getting to the point where you can separate the muscles and you get to the um, the peritoneum and you'll get to your visceral and parietal peritoneum. For us, we like to reflect that bladder down because we know that um, if we do that, then we'll have a little bit more um, space to deal with when we're closing up the uterus that we won't, won't end up injuring the bladder. Um, we always put a catheter in so that the bladder is, is um, deflated. Um, and then we cut across the uterus in transverse incision in the center area first. Um, and as I said, feather light with your knife. It's really good if you can use your scalpel and enter the uterus without entering the amniotic membrane. Um, so you keep the membranes intact. That's so important when you're doing a preterm birth to be able to scoop the baby out um, of that. And then um, the other thing I would say is make sure at that point in time before you cut into the uterus, I always look up and make sure that all my team members are, are there and they're uh, you know, attentive and aware that the baby's about to be born. So my neonatologist and my anaesthetist is there. Sometimes um, you'll need some help delivering the baby. If you feel like it's been a fully cesarean section, you've put the pillow in, your anaesthetist might be able to give you some IVGTN, which will relax the uterus and allow you to deliver the baby then. Um, it's also a nice time to get the parents a little bit excited and say to them, I hope you've got your phone ready because baby's about to be delivered. Um, because, you know, almost always it's a very happy moment in, um, in theatres when babies are being delivered. If in fact you are concerned that the baby is going to be unwell, um, then, you know, it's good for you to have talked to everyone beforehand and very much have been a neonatologist on the same page with that. Um, so then we deliver the baby um, using our hands. Sometimes people use their forceps with their head first. If it's a breech baby, then you need to actively deliver the breech. So either the bottom itself first or the feet first and then deliver the rest of the baby arms coming out um, actively as a love set. So you sweep them over the body to deliver the arms. And then the head, you might get your assistant to flex the head from the outside, pushing on the mum's tummy. Um, and you use your hands in a particular maneuver to be able to flex that head and bring it out. Um, and if not, then you might use forceps to do that. So all of that needs to be done so gently um, because you're fully aware that that uterus being injured and tearing down to the vagina or tearing out to the sides um, to that tiger country is really something that you don't want to be doing. You want to make sure that you look after the mum's tissue as best you can. If it's a fully dilated um, caesarean, then you're very aware that the uterus may well be um, very bogged with fluid and that muscle may well tear very, very easily. If they've had a previous cesarean section, the uterus itself might be very thin. Um, so it's just knowing the nuance of all these different scenarios, which you learn, right? You learn through your years of training um, and you become very skilled at doing obstetrics. I often laugh that um, we're very lucky in obstetrics. We only actually have one surgery, so we better get it right and do it well. Um, it, it probably is a bit of a simplification of the situation, but I think um, most of us are, are very comfortable being able to navigate the anatomy of the pelvis. Um, 
And then when you're closing up, um, it's really important to understand your, your blood supply comes in laterally. So the first thing we do, the first two sutures we put in after we've delivered the placenta um, is to the angles of the incisions. So the lateral angles, once you've put, I put figure of eights in actually, um, but once you've uh, tied your two um, sutures there, you very much control the blood loss. Um, then you can close and we routinely close in two layers um, for the uterus. And once the, the uterus is closed, then most of us will do a bit of a check, make sure that the um, ovaries and tubes are normal. Um, and then, um, you know, be happy with our hemostasis. And if necessary, we might do a figure of eight to capture any vessels that might still be problematic. Um, and then once we've done that, then it's just a matter of closing up the sheath um, and most of us all put in a suture to the adipose tissue. For me, that's really building the foundation of my skin to make sure that everything's sitting nicely so that the skin doesn't have any um, tension at all. Another little tip I'll give you for the skin closure is that um, sometimes people close skin and there's a little bit of um, puckering on either side because they're putting knots in. For a cesarean section scar, you don't need to put knots in for your skin. You just start one centimetre lateral to where your incision starts and then pop up where your incision angle is, go all the way along, come to the end, again, duck under and come out one centimetre lateral. You've now got your suture length on either side. When you put your dressing on and, and you cut your the rest of the excess suture off, so you've got probably about three, four centimetres of suture lateral to where your incision starts. Um, that's all you need. Um, so you'll find that I, I use a suture that needs to be removed in five days. And I've never had a situation where the suture has somehow come out. Um, so without those knots, you'll find that you get a very nice, even, neat closure. So I guess at this point, this is when the new mum and dad can go off and enjoy their baby. But you as a doctor, are there any specific key concerns you might have or things you look out for once the procedure has finished? So let's focus on the post-operative situation for the mum. It's really important that you go and debrief with mum and dad because, as I said, giving the best care is only part of it. It's also helping the patients to understand what they've received and for you to understand how the decision might have impacted on the patient. So I tend to talk through what has happened, you know, reassuring them that the cesarean section went perfectly well. Baby was born in a really good condition and we're happy for baby to be in the room with you. I'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow and we'll talk through things again tomorrow. Um, for tonight, we'll leave the catheter in and you can feel very confident that you'll have enough pain relief um, and if you're uncomfortable and wanting more pain relief, just ask for it. I often say to them, we're the house of drugs, so there's plenty of opportunity for you to do anything that will make you comfortable. Then the next day, I try and get there to make sure I go through a debrief with them. And that looks like saying to them, are you comfortable with how everything went? Do you understand? Will I talk through the events? You know, do you understand why we made the decisions we did along the way? And give them plenty of opportunity to ask questions and say to them, I'll see you again at six weeks anyway. So if there's anything that you're mulling over, very happy to talk about it then. 
and then I'll attend to um, any of the post-operative uh, care that needs to be looked at in terms of the bladder, making sure the bladder is functional. Sometimes the bladder gets a little bit, um, you know, distended or um, injured through the forceps and needs a little bit of an extended rest or through the cesarean, in which case you might choose to leave the catheter in for a little bit longer. Unusually, but sometimes if you've handled the bowel for any reason, um, you might need to think about keeping the lady nil by mouth or going slowly with oral fluids or watching for you know bowel sounds and and what you would learn on the usual surgical wards with abdominal and bowel care however most of our ladies bounce back very quickly um, where their gut function is concerned um, it's really encouraging them to mobilize and then encouraging them to come back to see you at six weeks and making sure that that scar heals well and then touching on contraception so it's very important that they understand that breastfeeding is not contraception um, and um, you know, that they can fall pregnant very quickly afterwards and that may or may not be their choice. And if they've had a cesarean section, we talk about the interpregnancy interval, we think maybe 18 months might not be a bad delay in terms of, um, you know, waiting a little while before having another baby. The length of stay has changed a great deal in the time that I've practiced. So at the beginning, we'd be saying a week to 10 days for ladies having cesarean section. Now some ladies are leaving on the same day, the day after having a cesarean section. Um, and even if the um, patients are staying for a bit longer, that looks like two to three nights after cesarean. Um, and we do a fair bit of the care in the house. So we have dom midwives, domiciliary midwives who will go home and help with that post-operative care as well. Every now and then you have a, a cesarean that you're a bit concerned about, that you worry about perhaps some re-bleeding or an acute abdomen that needs to go back to theatre or retain products. And so if that's the case, then we've got a high dependency. I would either the patient needs to go straight back to theatre or more commonly go to high dependency so that we can watch them very closely and carefully and consider whether or not we need to take them back to theatre. So we are coming to the end of our time now, and I don't want to take up too much of your day, but this has been very engaging to listen to. Before we head off, though, do you have any key take home points for anyone out there listening? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that um, the majority of the people listening, I think most of you will not end up doing obstetrics um, and you'll find that your passion will lie elsewhere. Um, obstetrics, I think, is a very confronting thing. You're either very drawn to it or, um, you know, it might not be for you. And if it's not for you, I would encourage you to really try and learn very carefully because those weeks in your obstetrics during your medical education might be the only time that you have exposure to the pregnant woman until you're in a mid-career and suddenly on an aeroplane they call for a doctor. Um, in a tertiary hospital setting it's very easy and I know most people will understand that the physiology of pregnant woman is so different that they'd rather not get involved and I can understand that. It's scary. A pregnant woman can bleed li literally a litre every minute. There's no other specialty I know of that can see a woman go from being well to compensating for so long so that they, they all their vitals look all right and then they suddenly crash. So it's very scary. Um, but the best thing you can do is to arm yourself with a good education so that you feel confident that you can do your best to help a pregnant woman in that situation. And I would really put in a, a little quest that you think about the fact that if there is an arrest in a pregnant woman, um, by four minutes, 
patients, you need to be thinking about a perimortem cesarean section. So that is delivering the baby as a way of removing an obstacle to effective resuscitation. That has nothing to do with saving the baby and everything to do with saving the mother's life. And even if you're not a surgeon, even if it doesn't come naturally to you, you're a doctor, pick up a scalpel, pick up a knife and cut that abdomen and remove that baby as a way of saving the mother's life. Um, actually, in that situation, you'll get very little bleeding because obviously what you're trying to do is to reattain cardiovascular um, integrity. So that's something that you might need to just stop a moment and put your head to as you do CPR and as you go through your training. To those who want to train, um, fantastic, welcome. So excited to know that you want to train and you couldn't start sooner on that pathway. It has become a very, very competitive pathway. So get onto Ranscog, hop on, have a look at all the things. It's a very structured point system. Things like research, things like voluntary work is very important to be able to gain the points um, for yourself to be competitive. You've got three goes at doing it, at, at um, trying to get onto the training scheme. Scheme. And certainly, you know, every year we have people who are very excited to get on, but we also have a cohort who are disappointed that they weren't prepared well enough to be able to be successful candidates. So it, once you know that that's what you want to do, and it probably goes for all specialties that are difficult to get onto, hop onto their, their college website and have a look at what it is that you need to do to be able to best position yourself to be competitive. Good luck. And um, I can't speak highly enough about obstetrics. It's been my passion. Um, it's almost an addiction. It's a bit of a drug. I find myself driving home at 2, 3 a.m. still air punching and, and excited by having delivered a baby. I think it's um, such a privilege to be able to be in the room on one of a handful of days, which is, you know, ultimately the most important days of, of that woman's life. And to be able to have quietly in the background looked after the safety of herself and her baby at this critical time. I think it's an absolute privilege. I'd encourage you, no matter what career you go into, to be a reflective practitioner. So that looks like afterwards asking yourself, okay, how did I think that went? What could I have done better? Was there something that I didn't notice? And is it because I'm in a bit of an echo chamber that it, it's outside of my worldview that I didn't recognize that that was actually really important to her and that was a trade-off that mattered to her? And, you know, I need to perhaps go back and debrief with her, but I also need to grow as a clinician to be able to hear that message a little bit more clearly. My last and final plug along that same line is that um, we've put together a group called Quill Caring for Women in Labour, and we've got our first conference coming up in September, and it's going to be a virtual conference, and we invite midwives, doctors, clinicians, as well as medical students. If you're at all inclined into obstetrics, you might find that just listening to that might reaffirm that for you and set you on a pathway to caring for women in their lives. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. And obstetrics really sounds like a very unique and rewarding specialty. And thank you so much today for having a chat to us and sharing all this knowledge with us. I've definitely found it very interesting. And I'm sure everyone listening from home will agree with that as well. So thank you so much, Sabrina. Thanks, Angie.